Imagine you're the CEO of an international company and you want to expand into a new country, a country with a thriving middle class. You study the market. You find a domestic partner, a local who understands how business is done there. You find your location. You open your first store almost exactly at the wrong moment. That's what happened to Mike Shattuck, president of Focus Brands International, the company that owns Cinnabon, when they opened their first Cinnabon store in Syria. We've been open in Damascus now for about uh, 15 months. Uh, our opening was actually right before the beginning of the, uh, the Arab Spring, which uh, resulted in the current uh, violence. Shattuck says that before the violence, Syria seemed like a great place for Cinnabon to expand. You know, Cinnabon, they make those huge, sticky cinnamon rolls, a sweet, fluffy, high-calorie symbol of first-world conspicuous consumption. And Syria seemed perfect. The country was opening up, becoming more global. Sushi restaurants and Benetton stores were sprouting up in the cities. And there was this expanding group of affluent businessmen looking for new opportunities, opportunities which included running the city's first Cinnabon franchise. We had uh, a tremendous level of interest from principally young entrepreneurs in Syria. Uh, so we had quite a few that we were evaluating before we selected uh, you know, our current franchise partner to go in with. According to classical political theory, a country like Syria with a growing and somewhat thriving entrepreneurial middle class should be more likely to shift to democratic rule than, say, a country like Libya with a dictator who controls one source of wealth, oil. But that's not happening in Syria. Uprisings started in Syria, Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, all within a month or so of each other in late 2010, early 2011. And they've all resulted in regime change except in Syria. Syria, as we know, is still locked in a vicious, brutal conflict. Syria today looks very different than the Syria of a year ago when Mike Shattuck first opened his Cinnabon store. I don't think anyone out there could have ever imagined that at a single flashpoint it would roll through the whole region like it did. We thought in the case of Syria that we were going at a time where we would have uh, you know, an uh, extended and, and long-lasting opportunity. Uh, you know, that... Uh, hasn't quite worked out that way. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Robert Smith. Today is Friday, May 25th. Today on the program, why are things unfolding so differently in Syria than they did in Egypt or Tunisia or even Libya? Why is this country that many observers would have said was better off than those other countries? Why is Syria now seemingly in a worse position? And as you'll see on today's program, the answer has a lot to do with that professional middle class of businessmen and entrepreneurs that Mike Shattuck tapped to run his Cinnabon franchise in Damascus. It also, of course, has to do with history and politics. The theory goes if there's a large and relatively independent business class, they're not interested in civil conflicts. They don't want to go to war. It's bad for business. So the business class will use its power and influence to basically try to stop dictators from being so brutal. That's the theory. And that is essentially what happened in Egypt. We did a show about this a while ago. The business class there is thoroughly intertwined with the military. And basically, business interests tempered the military there. There were still crackdowns, but not the same type of brutal extended crackdown that you're seeing with the Assad regime in Syria. So we wanted to find out what's the difference. Why is this not happening in Syria when it happened in Egypt? And we talked to a couple of Syria experts. First, Josh Landis. He is the director of Middle East Studies at University of Oklahoma and author of the blog Syria Comment. And he says that the reason Syria's Assad regime is so much more powerful and has so much more staying power than regimes in Egypt or Libya 
is that in a way, the Assads have been cannily preparing for this moment for 40 years. You can see the earliest preparation back in 1970 when the Assad family first took power over Syria in a military coup. Landa says back then, the Assads were the last people you'd expect to run a country. They came from a small minority sect called the Alawites. They lived in small mountain villages and they spoke Arabic with a country accent. Landis spoke with our own Adam Davidson. Now, these people knew nothing about running a country, running an economy, or anything else uh, about... These were like small mountain villagers. These are mountain villagers who'd gotten into the military corps and had some education through the military, but they were very unsophisticated, and they didn't have a deep community of cosmopolitan people from which to draw from. So they had to make alliances, which they did. And they, they Hafs al-Assad, the father of the present president, basically struck a bargain with the Sunni merchant elite. If you support me and let me call the shots for the government, I will let you run the economy. Sunni merchants didn't like this at all. They didn't like the Alawites when they first came to town. They call them wafadin, meaning foreigners who've somehow come to the city, uh, who flocked to the city. But they relented over time, and they get things like the big Sunni households. They will get the franchises, for example, the Ford car, the Mercedes, the Japanese cars, various advertising companies. They get franchises, and they essentially have a monopoly in the country. A classic story is the Sham Holding Company. Sham is the word for for Damascus in Syria. Um, And this big holding company, which brought together 30, 40 of the leading Sunni merchant families of Damascus, came to the Assad government and said, here, we've put together all this capital. We want to build things like a power plant, um, roads, toll roads, you name it, things that the country desperately needed, didn't have the capital for. The government wanted this. What happened is Rami Mahalouf, the president's cousin, stepped forward and said, okay, we're going to give you the license, but here I'm putting forward $300 million of my own money, and I want to be a 50% shareholder. Now, that's an offer you can't refuse. So they all say yes because they know they're going to get all the good contracts if he's in it 50%, but they're also tied to the government. So these are independent families, but they're, they've feathered their bed with the government. So we have this powerful merchant class. They're in bed with the Assad regime, but they don't really trust them, which brings us to now. This merchant class, these are exactly the ones who could possibly turn the tide in Syria. I mean, they have global connections. They have a lot of cash. They could provide the money for arms and guidance. If the big city middle class folks shifted allegiance, as happened in Egypt and Tunisia, you could perhaps see the same outcome there, a collapse of the Assad regime. But... The middle class has no incentive to play that role and every incentive to sit on the fence and just wait this whole thing out. Iham Kamal is a Syrian-born analyst at the Eurasia Group, a research and consulting firm. And he says the thing keeping this merchant class on the fence is a big question in the back of their minds. It's really what else is out there? What's the alternative? And I think that's the key question to to how Syrians... uh, think about this uh, in the capital and in Aleppo. Uh, Is there an alternative? Who do we back up if we do not like Assad? And until there's an answer uh, to that question, or a real answer, a viable one, uh, they will remain on the sidelines. And the alternative that is most apparent, the rebels who are now fighting the Assad regime, the merchant class has their doubts about. 
Josh Landis says that the elites in Damascus and Aleppo, they worry a lot about the people behind the current uprising. Remember, this uprising, it started in villages outside the major cities, and it started among the country's very large population of very poor people. You go out to the countryside in any village, and there is, the houses are just cement blocks. There's very little adornment, very little furniture, and then you get poorer and poorer from there. You're always shocked in Syria about how many people seem to have money because people are going out. The restaurants are full. There's lots of restaurants. People are driving good cars. But that, you know, maybe we're talking 100,000, 200,000 people in a country of 24 million. 40% of Syrians live in these suburbs, which are illegal. They weren't designed by the government. People built housing illegally. They tap the electricity illegally. They get water illegally if they do, or they buy it out of trucks that come by. They have just built this this uh, illegal housing. And that's 40% of Syrians. So there, you look at that sort of that young and wealthy elite in the center of the cities, but that's a small portion of all of Syria. And the class issues in Syria are divide the revolution. The revolutionaries and much of the West have been waiting for the upper class to defect, to turn against the Assad regime. They're frightened. They're frightened of all those poor people. They look out at the countryside and they think, what if these people win? What kind of economic plan? Are they going to respect capitalism? Are they going to preserve our wealth? Or are they going to come by and say, oh, you've been a collaborator for 40 years and we're going to take everything you own? They don't know. So that's on one hand. If you're a Cinnabon franchise owner in Damascus or a big real estate developer in Aleppo, you are worried about who might take power if the Assad regime were to fall. So that's the unknown nature. There's also a very known danger about siding with anybody other than Assad. If the Assad regime finds out, you'd be in big trouble. They have built a security state. The military, we believe about 60, 70 percent of the upper officer corps is Alawite. And it's not only just Alawite. It's the brother, the family of the Assad family dominates the upper ranks. The Assads did not make the mistake that Mubarak and the Tunisian president made, which was to allow their children to go into international banking and get rich. They sent their kids to the military to learn the arts of war. They've been preparing for this uprising for the last 40 years. They know they have to hang together or they're going to hang separately. The Sunnis are dependent. The Sunni merchants who have the money are totally dependent on this political order. Any Sunni merchant that is caught giving money or giving funds to the opposition or the insurgents is going to lose his economic – he'll be put into jail, tortured, and killed. Um, and he'll certainly lose whatever hold he has over his company. So that's that's the dangers for the they can't defect. People have been saying, "Oh, they'll turn against the government." They can't turn against the government. The moment they do, they're going to have their wealth stripped from them, and they'll be thrown into jail. Landis says the people trying to oust Assad and his regime. They know all this. They know all the reasons that the elite, the business class, the merchants, they know the reason that they're stuck on the fence. And so they're trying to force the merchant class off of that fence. Increasingly, the opposition 
has been drawing up lists of collaborators and wealthy people that they consider to have made their money through the regime. They're publishing them on the internet, and uh, and increasingly they're hunting them down and shooting them. So there is pressure. They have shot members of the wealthy families? Absolutely. There's been a number of, fa- of factories that have been blown up or burnt in the suburbs of Aleppo um, or that have been robbed. There have been wealthy regime collaborators who have been assassinated or blown up in their cars. So this the, – the, the opposition is trying to show these people who they consider to be collaborators do not collaborate. You have to, you have to make a choice. You're with us or you're against us. You can't just remain with the regime and expect not to pay a price. You know, I, I feel for these people, they're, they're trying to run businesses, they're trying to improve their country, and on one hand, they're afraid that a regime can put them in jail. On the other hand, their factories could get blown up. And they could get murdered or assassinated, I know. And, and, and then, you know, obviously the pain is spread throughout Syria. There's also the people that have been crushed by the Assad forces. There's people who are trying to, you know, change their lives. It is a grisly mess over there right now. And Ayam Kamal says this strategy of trying to force the businessmen to pick one side or the other, it's not going to work. At some point, they could be forced, some part of them. Uh, But the more likely scenario, I think, is that they will continue to hedge. They will deal with both both sides. They will uh, attempt to to appease both. Uh, In the absence of, of a clear winner in this battle, a clear winner as in within the next few months, Uh, the only way that you can survive as a person, as a business, as a family, is is to try to compromise. Any way you look at it, the immediate future appears pretty bleak in Syria. A year from now, Syria could be even more violent than than it is today. But there is is a glimmer of hope for Syria, and it's, it's almost a paradox because Syria... You know, as we've told you, Syria has advantages. Syria has a thriving business class. Syria is rich, but they're not super rich. They're not oil rich. Now, states that have huge hydrocarbon wealth, that have huge reserves of oil, they almost never become democratic because the power belongs to whoever controls the pumps. And there's so much money there available for dictators. But countries that have diverse economies and an enterprise-oriented middle class, they have a much better chance in the long run. Syria actually looks like Britain and much of Europe did centuries ago, and like Korea, Japan, and Taiwan have more recently. There's a tiny and powerful elite, lots of very, very poor people, mainly in the countryside, and crucially, a small but growing middle class. And that formula over a long period tends to tilt a country towards greater equality and democracy. So hard as it may be to see right now, and as violent as it might get over the next months and years, the odds may be in Syria's favor in the long run. They have the elements there to become something more stable and less violent in the long run. As always, we would love to hear what you thought of today's show. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening.